Yes, this is EM Case's Best Case Ever mini-podcast series, and I'm your host, Dr. Anton Helman. In this month's Cars Cases Best Case Ever series, we have with us the one and only Dr. David Carr, who's going to give us his best case ever when it comes to interpreting blood cultures. So Dr. Carr, let it rip. Let's hear your best case ever when it comes to interpreting blood cultures from Janice General. There was a woman who was seen in our emergency department. She had come to the eMERGE complaining of fever, cough, feeling generally unwell for the past week. She had an x-ray, which the radiology staff commented on as a left lower lobe pneumonia. She had a gas, lactate, cultures, blood work, and everything looked pretty good. The eMERGE doc gave her some clavulin and sent her home, and I think the care was great. And then, imagine you're the culture person. You're the person in your hospital who's responsible for looking at abnormal blood cultures, urine tests, throat cultures, wounds. That fun job that everyone loves to do. You get the results, and the blood culture on the first set grows strep viridans. You call the person, you ask how she's feeling. She says she feels fantastic. So, you hang up the phone. Perfect, job done, click. The next day, another person's on for cultures. And that second set of cultures comes back in the second bottle, and it grows strep viridans again. That second doctor calls the patient, how are you feeling? She feels great. Job done. Click. But I'm the third doc, and I'm working in eMERGE. So she comes in and she says, Doc, two of your colleagues have called me. I'm taking this clavulin for this abnormal bacteria in my blood. I feel fine, but my clavulin expires in a day. You know, it's only been a week. Do I need to keep taking it? I look at her file and realize she has strep viridans. I look at her chart. She has pneumonia. And I say to myself, pneumonia, strep viridans, this doesn't even make sense. I look at the chart further. The medical student who examined her recorded a two out of six murmur. I listen to her heart. She's got a murmur. I get a transthoracic echo, not a TEE. And she's got endocarditis. I have been involved with multiple cases of people missing endocarditis by getting reassuring phone calls from patients with abnormal blood cultures. This is a scary practice. So Dr. Carr, this patient had strep viridans in their blood, and that's one of the common bugs that we see in endocarditis. Now, we don't need to know every single bug that causes endocarditis, but just to keep on our radars, when you get that blood culture back or you're looking through a patient's chart who has a fever and you're looking at the culture results, what are some of the bugs that we really should know about that cause endocarditis and how should we interpret them? Yeah, be scared when you see gram positives. Firstly, staph aureus never belongs in the blood. And if you see staph aureus in the blood, that's still the most common cause of endocarditis in North America especially in our IV drug use population, depending on where you work. Staph aureus is always bad in blood. Strep viridans, as we talked about in terms of native valve endocarditis, is a very important thing. And sometimes we see these weird organisms, the HASEC organisms. But a real underappreciated organism is coag-negative staph, which is the number two bug that causes endocarditis. Wait, hold on, Dr. Carr. When I get back a culture gram-positives, and it's coag-negative staph, and the patient feels fine, I assume that that patient has a contaminant. I mean, that's the vast majority of these coag-negative staphs, right? Totally. 82% of the time, coag-negative staph is a contaminant. So if you're a betting man, go for it. There's a problem. There's actually two problems. 
Coag negative staph is the second most common cause in people with valvular endocarditis. So if you see coag negative staph, you got to go one step further. You have to look at the chart and say, what's this person's past medical history? Well, if they just had a mechanical valve put in six months ago, coag negative staph in their blood likely is endocarditis. And there's one other really weird pearl. And this is something I've come across. And this is that coag negative staph in non-people with intercardiac devices and valves isn't always a contaminant either. There's one kind of organism, a subtype of coag negative staph called slug. That's kind of a mouthful when you hear the real word. But slug stands for staph lagodenesis. And it's called slug because it's much less of a mouthful. But slug represents about 3% of coag negative staph. But if you see slug... It's endocarditis. So coag negative staph in someone without a valve, you can feel reassured, provided they don't have slug. At our lab, they report no slug species isolated. So I'm reassured when I see someone without a valve and without slug and coag negative staph, it's likely a contaminate. But you have to know what your lab's looking for. Okay, so that's viridans, that's coag negative staph, that's staph aureus. Now, I've heard that endocarditis can be misdiagnosed as a UTI. So what, like E. coli goes from the UTI into an endocarditis? I don't get that. What, what's that all about, the UTI and endocarditis relationship? Well, it's interesting. We often culture people, and sometimes we get bugs that we don't want to get. When you see someone, just like we saw that patient with pneumonia having virodance, that should make you scratch your head. If you see someone with a UTI that goes staph aureus, you need to get nervous. 20% of these people with staph aureus bacteremia have endocarditis. And if you see staph aureus in the urine, you have to really think that they have endocarditis too. So if you see an organism that doesn't belong, if you see staph in your urine, this person's a lot sicker than just a course of macrobid will help. Okay, so that's all about the bugs. What about the physical exam? You know, we all learned in medical school about raw spots and Osler nodes and Janeway lesions. These patients with endocarditis, it seems like they, a lot of them have very vague symptoms. They might have a fever and they're just kind of generally unwell. What are some of the pearls you can tell our listeners in terms of who we should suspect endocarditis on? Yeah, you're absolutely right. These classic peripheral manifestations that you mentioned really occur up to about 10% of the time. If you find them, great. But if you sat in a room of residents and colleagues and asked them how many of them have seen raw spots or Janeway lesions... You're not going to have a lot of hands up. What we know is that up to 90% have a fever and up to 95% have a murmur. It's back to first principles. You have to listen for murmurs and you have to suspect endocarditis and keep it on the radar of every person who has a fever. Remember, the way we practice is not what it is, but what we don't want it to be. And when you have someone with a fever, especially if they don't have an obvious source, you have to think about endocarditis and you've got a document on the chart that they have no signs of endocarditis apart from the fever, just like you would say that they don't have jolt attenuation or something that would suggest they have meningitis. You have to keep infective endocarditis on your radar and look at people's teeth. You know, we're, we're looking at these Janeway lesions and all these stuff where we're never fine, but you get a real sense of someone's health. If you look in their mouth, remember someone's been to the dentist or had a, an invasive cleaning or something in the past two weeks with a fever that should really get you going that a GI wonder if some bacteria seeded their bloodstream. So if they have really nasty looking teeth or they've had a big cleaning recently, then that can be a seed for the bacteria for endocarditis. For sure. And if, in that febrile of unknown origin, if you have to think about it. 
Get your patient to smile. Yeah, say cheese. <laughs> okay. So, Dr. Carr, let's say you've got an IV drug user with fever and you suspect endocarditis. What do you need to know about working them up and treating them? Do we need to know the antibiotics that we need to give? Do we treat them like a septic patient and give them fluids and antibiotics right away? How do you manage these patients? How do you work them up? Look, I think the key is that you have to have great respect for IV drug users when it comes to them being sick. If an IV drug user has fever, 15% of the time they have endocarditis, but about 40% of the time they'll be bacteremic. And not just endocarditis, but there's other problems they get, back pain and discitis and epidural abscesses and meningitis. There's lots of other bad stuff. I think the key is if you have an IV drug user who has a fever, this is someone who needs admission. And remember, the endocarditis that we see with IV drug users, these people are pretty obvious. Those right-sided staph aureus IV drug users that you see with endo, they're super sick. They're septic. They're ill. You're not going to miss that. It's the chronic intermittent indwelling fevers of endo that are much more challenging to make. But with these IV drug users and with endocarditis as a whole, remember, the antibiotics are important when someone's in septic shock. But for the majority of endo we see, especially the ones we diagnose over the phone, these are people that you have time to look it up and you have time to speak to your ID colleagues about. No doubt if you have someone with staph aureus and who's super sick with presumed right-sided endocarditis, you're going to give them something to treat their endocarditis. But it's really not that important to think about treatment and emerge the way we would with an obvious pneumonia or something like that. Okay. So when it comes to antibiotics, most of the time it can wait. Ask a friend. Now, we all know that the yield of blood cultures in all comers who present with fever to the emergency department is extremely low. But of course, the case of endocarditis or suspected endocarditis is totally different. You really need to get the blood cultures. Can you just give our listeners some pearls on who needs blood cultures and how to get them? Oh, don't even get me started on blood cultures. I mean, I think we need some standardization of who actually needs blood cultures. I mean, that's a whole lecture in itself. That 20-year-old with pilo should have E. coli in her blood. I'm not doing it there. But I think the following is important to consider. If a nurse asks you if you need one set of blood cultures, the reality is never. You either need no sets or you need at least two sets. If you have a condition that you're trying to rule out, be it maybe a traveler who you're worried about some tropical disease or endocarditis is on your radar, you need to do at least two sets and at least two sites. And you want to suck that blood culture tube to the max. Get that 10 mils in. Remember, cultures are positive about 95% of the time in endocarditis. In 5% of the time, you don't yield the bacteria on culture. And that's in half of cases, that's because they have a fastidious hassock organism, but in the other half, it's because they're priorly treated. And we see lots of patients who've gone into a walk-in clinic, maybe have a script for some viral perceived condition who come in. In those people who are partially treated, I always say three sets as opposed to two. But hey, Anton, I don't want people running away doing three sets of cultures on everyone. We do way too many cultures. But when you're looking for endo, do it properly. At least two sets, at least two sites. Great. So those are some awesome pearls. Dr. Carr, can you just wrap it up with a summary of all the pearls we just talked about in this best case ever? Yeah, here are my pearls. 10 pearls. Pearl number one, examine your patients. Remember, People with fever, this is a can't-miss diagnosis. If you have fever, you need to look for endocarditis. So look for the classics and listen for murmur. Pearl number two, look at patients' teeth. If they're dirty or if they've been cleaned, 
and you have a febrile patient, be worried. Pearl number three, IV drug use plus fever, 15% of the time, endocarditis. They should make you nervous. Pearl number four, if someone has a valve and they have a fever, you should also be very nervous. Or if they have a valve and they feel crappy, you should be nervous. Always think about endocarditis on any complaint that a valvular patient comes in. Pearl number five, two or three sets, two sites. Never the one set, do cultures properly and suck the tubes dry. Pearl number six, coag negative staff. Don't blow it off. If they have a valve, they have endo. Pearl number seven, coag negative staph. If they don't have a valve, look for slug. If they don't have the slug bacteria, it's probably just the contaminant. Pearl number eight, get nervous when the urine grows staph aureus. That does not belong in the urine. It should make you very, very nervous. Pearl number nine, empiric treatment, only if they're urgent. You have time to look these people up. You don't need to push drugs. Look up the recommendations. Talk to your ID colleagues. Unless someone's in septic shock, they've probably had endocarditis for some time. And pearl number 10, try an emergency department ultrasound. Sometimes there's help there. Wow, packed with awesome pearls. Thanks, Dr. Carr. That was an awesome best case ever. (laughs) 